Today on More Than a Test, we have Dr. Julia Rachel Bear. She is the co-founder and CEO of the ILO Group. Just about every woman in an education leadership position has heard of Julia. Many of us have been sponsored by, mentored by, and supported by Julia. She used to be the COO of Chiefs for Change. She has been pivotal in many of the superintendent searches across the country. She has changed the lives of educators, changed the lives of women, and she's got so much to tell us about her incredible career that spans being a special education teacher in New York City, all the way to leading the ILO group. Julia, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on, Laura. You and I met um, in April in Charlotte because we were at the Women's Leadership Education Conference, which you host. You are the, you know, the founder of, um, which is something big that your, your organization ILO does. Can you tell us about ILO and a little bit about WLE, but we're going to get there eventually. So tell us about ILO first. Uh, yeah. So ILO Group, it stands for In the Life Of, and we are very proudly a woman-owned, woman-led policy and strategy firm. Our name in the uh, ILO Group that stands for In the Life Of comes from this idea that we work side by side with the country's leading educators, experts, and government partners. Um, we were founded at the sort of intersection of the pandemic time period when everyone was worrying about how we were going to prevent a lost generation of students, what we were going to do to bring capacity to systems that had never had the kind of shocks and impacts to them. And we wanted to create a company that really had at its mission, rolling up our sleeves and doing whatever it takes to help support these leaders from continuing to respond to students' exacerbated needs in the pandemic, but also to really start to think about what the future state of our systems need to look like. Everyone who we work with in this space all is fully committed to supporting our nation's students and our young people. Our work at this point now reaches one in three students across the nation, and we're really excited about the progress and the impact we're having. That's incredible. How do you get to that one in three? Is that how many district partners, how many state partners? How did you get to that? Yeah, our district and our state partners and the reach that that work then has across the students in those systems. That's incredible reach in such a short amount of time. And I think you've kind of, you know, drawn this picture of what exactly what we've seen coming out of COVID is the first concern was, oh my gosh, student learning loss. Mm -hmm. And then right after that, it's like teachers, right? We're about to have a teacher shortage. The pandemic, um, COVID really, you know, put a lot of pressure on teachers and coming out of it, that, that's been really hard. And now what I see a lot of your focus on is superintendents and, and leadership. Um, and one of the articles that your team sent me was around, you know, there's kind of a, a lot of vacancies and, 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 and there's a, a gap here because coming out of COVID, that superintendent job kind of had a highlight on it. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, ILO at, it, at its inception had always had this real dual focus, not only on the side of how do you help the leaders that are in these roles to be able to thrive, taking on their, their biggest bets and making sure that they could execute on those with the support and the capacity that comes from having a team who really understands their lives. But there was always the second part of ILO Group, which was how do we better support and train next generation of leaders? Some of the work that I have been doing over the years has been helping aspiring district and state superintendents to land that top job. I'm so excited that just last week, the 45th leader that I've had the privilege of supporting uh, became a superintendent. It was right on the heels of um, my 44th, which was a state leader. And I'm so excited about that level of impact. But the reality is, We've got to do so much more to really fundamentally change the design of these systems and the way that they were constructed, because at its core, these systems were designed by and for men. There's a reason and a really clear reason that here we are 
it being 2023 and we have remained stagnant in the percent of women that are leading in these top roles. We've been at 30% for about a decade now. So part of what we wanted to try to do at ILO Group was we wanted to help to get to one kind of truth. We understood and we knew from our own work that the underrepresentation of women was at a critical point that demanded action. But in order to get to that level of action, we thought that one key step was creating a public database that people could look at, that the media could pull from, that researchers could look at, that helped people to see the problem for what it was. So much of what the media and, and research was pointing to were things that were more um, survey. So it might've been surveys that maybe only like 10% of leaders were responding to. But we wanted to be able to say unequivocally, here is the data about what's happening. So about a year and a half ago, we embarked on a project that we call the Superintendent Research Project. We've now put out three updates about this project. And it is a publicly available database that we put out on our website under the research tab. And it analyzes what's happening in the top 500 largest districts in the country. Laura, to put in perspective, these are districts that serve 16,000 students all the way up to New York City at, at the most. And we wanted to take a look and see what kind of turnover we were seeing. And our findings have been deeply troubling. The gender gap, which we all knew existed, is wider than we anticipated. It's not getting better. When we looked at the years since the pandemic began, and then we compared to the years prior to the pandemic, we saw that, in fact, we were seeing what I would refer to as historic levels of turnover, 46 percentage increase in the amount of leadership turnover. And despite all this kind of carousel of leadership, it could have been a chance for more women to get into those top jobs, but it's the opposite. What we found is that the status quo has held up. Men still remain at 70% of the leaders of those top 500 districts, but even worse is what happens when women leave their job. What we found is that when women left their job nearly seven out of 10 times, they were replaced by a man. And when a man left his job, seven out of 10 times, he was replaced by a man. Education is supposed to be this thing that gives future generations stability. And, and we tell our kids all the time that they can be anything they want. And what I would say is it's absolutely not true. We cannot keep this promise if leadership isn't stable and if entire subsets of leaders are denied the opportunity to lead. Okay, let me drill in on two things that you said. So the first thing you said is that turnover was way more than you expected. And, and what did you learn about that? Why are people leaving the job? There's a whole host of things. And I think like all things, these things are not so black and white. You know, it's not a matter that it was just because of, you know, big changes on their boards or, you know, the level of intensity um, of the politics or frankly, big shifts and changes in, in what was happening within communities. Sort of many factors that led to this level of turnover. But what I would say is what we know to be true for so many of the women is that what was going on during the pandemic in particular led to very different types of experiences. We had women who in public board meetings were being told that they needed to fix their face, having direct threats. We had a number of, of leaders that we were working with who had to exercise provisions in their contracts to increase security and to create security in their homes, to have security guards at board meetings. At one point, one of the leaders we were working with had to be held in like a holding room because things had gotten um, so dangerous within the boardroom. And wow. I think people want to forget that stuff, right? You want to move on and we want to say, okay, this school year is going to finally be a school year that feels normal. 
But that stuff was um, was very ever present. And we're still seeing the ramifications in so many communities of such increased levels of um, hostility and uh, frankly, just discontent um, that still trickles into these conversations and a much more heightened need right now for leaders to be able to hone in on multiple aspects of the role, the academic and coherence, the political aspects, bringing communities along, and of course, the realities that the finances are very much changing as we go into these next couple of school years. So much of what you just said resonates with me, right? Like we all see the clips of board meetings where someone is threatening someone or yelling, and we rarely think about the person on the other side, right? We see the crazy person, we see the parent losing their mind, but we don't think about the fact that there's actually a human that they're attacking. And and the way you draw that picture for me um, is illuminating, to be totally honest, as someone who follows education really closely. And then I think you're also pointing to something that we all have, you know, we all know has been coming, but like as ESSER funds go, as the money from COVID goes, it's going to be, it's going to be a different landscape and, and not an easy one to manage, right? Because schools got used to a certain amount of money that won't be there anymore. Um, and I can see how that is exasperating the jobs. So let me just, um, so it's, it, so you, so first of all, you're, you're explaining why, you know, people are leaving. And then the next thing you pointed out was that we're not replacing them with women, right? It's harder. It seems that it's, it's rare that women are getting these jobs. Um, and it's hard for me to hear that because I, you mentioned the 44th and 45th person that you had placed. And I'm pretty sure the 44th was Susana Cordova, who got placed in Colorado where I live. Um, and my LinkedIn is just covered and people celebrate women celebrating this. We are so excited to have her back. She was in DPS. We all know her. She's, you know, she's a hero to us. Um, and so it's hard for me to understand, like, if that's how we feel as female educators, why is it so hard to get women in these jobs? Why is it so hard for the system to change? And so what are you learning about that? Yes, and we're all so proud of Susanna and what an incredibly exciting moment for Colorado. Definitely made me uh, want to relocate, that's for sure. <laughs> um, such an, an incredible, incredible moment. You know, look, I think on all of these things, part of what's happening in this moment and, and sort of in this cycle of, of leadership turnover is the way in which bias plays such a role in all of these processes. There is both bias that exists within how we go about these searches, who's even running the searches, the kinds of networks that those that are running the searches are pulling from. And, you know, so often retired superintendents are the ones that are being hired by these firms to help support the pull of candidates. And if already we know that those are largely white and, and male leaders, then that in itself is, is creating some of the challenges on it. But there's also what happens within the search process. One of the things that we're calling for as part of the Women Leading Ed advocacy agenda that came out of the summit is, so, is five tangible actions that we think can really help to accelerate change. The first is we have to get much more intentional about support systems. That's why we created Women Leading Ed. Having a network for women that is just a space where they can grow in not only their own trust and relationship, but their own leadership development is going to be enormous. We also have to embrace moving beyond mentorship and into more sponsorship. Sponsorship is a place where men play such a critical role. Being able to open up a seat at the table, being able to vouch for women when they're not in the room, when search leads are reaching out for being able to really talk about the level of impact and outcomes that these women are having is such a big part of it. But then we need to also change our hiring processes. 
we believe and we're calling for as part of the advocacy agenda that all searches should have a commitment to a finalist pool with multiple women. We know that when there are multiple women in finalist pool, there is research that shows that women are 79 times more likely to be selected. And so that is a really important vehicle that could really help to change the odds. And similarly, we think that in these processes, everyone needs to be trained in the way that bias can creep in. Um, I had a, a pretty um, challenging experience a number of years ago. We were supporting a female candidate in a search in Florida, in Sarasota. And the woman in, in the search, she's an incredible, incredible chief academic officer uh, from Miami-Dade, Marie Izquierdo. And when Marie was in that search, she was explicitly asked by board members, by female board members at that, about whether or not she would be moving with her kids and with her, her spouse. And then in this public board meeting, so not behind closed doors, this is out in a public board meeting, the board members, these two women, um, start sharing that the reason that they're not going to select Marie, despite her having been their top candidate, was because she had told them that she wasn't going to be moving her family with her, and they didn't think that they could trust a superintendent that didn't bring a family. Now, Laura, Marie's daughter was a junior in high school. It was the middle of the school year. Her daughter is like a, a, like a Division I track athlete. Like She was not going to, in the middle of the year, relocate, and it was a three-hour drive. Besides all of those things, that was a question that my men are never asked. In fact, I can name multiple male superintendents that I've supported that did not move their families, and nobody ever questioned it at all. And so for us, as part of the advocacy agenda, we think it's really important that there are questions that are just off limits, and commitments have to be made up front in the hiring process to help to unpack the way that bias creeps in to prevent what happened in that Sarasota search from, from happening. Okay. I want to, I want to point to something that I remember hearing in WLE that was like a mirror for me. I remember one of the superintendents who spoke said she saw another woman get a superintendent job right after she had had twins or she was pregnant with twins. And her first thought in her head was like, how is she going to do it all? Which again, we never have that thought for men. And I remember hearing her say that and I was like, oh my God, I know I've done that. I know I've thought that about a woman. How, how do we change that in ourselves? And why is that happening? Is that like, like embedded in us? Like, I, I think women can do anything. And then as soon as I see one moving into the role, I, I start questioning it. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you, what you know about that and how I can get better? This is, this is bias. We have all been trained in particular ways of thinking about things and we don't have enough examples in front of us about what great leaders look like who are not in the more traditional mold. So often our societal expectations about leadership revolve around traits that are very male dominated, being aggressive and decisive and tough. And for many women, they don't necessarily see themselves in that way. And for women of color in particular to show up in that way could actually feel like it could be really damaging. And so I think there's some of this which is on us as a society to really transform what the beliefs and understanding expectations look like. And a lot of that is in how we change our imagery, what we're putting out there, how we're looking at data and outcomes around the success and the impact and lifting up those stories. We also have to get much clearer about family and well-being supports. It's another part of our advocacy agenda. We think that it is time that we start to normalize the importance of both health and wellness, having packages that involve health and wellness incentives, family leave off limit time. You know, a couple of the men that I supported actually got 
provisions in their contract that now we put in for all of the contracts we help to negotiate with our women, which is off limit time. And it started because one of the male superintendents I was supporting, he had younger kids and he wanted to have off limit time to be able to walk his kids to school. It was really important to him. He also wanted to make sure that the board knew he was off limits on Saturdays. He did that and thanks to him, we now make that a norm in the things that we advocate for. Those kinds of shifts and those changes and being able to share those kinds of changes are really important and help to send a signal to others that it is allowable, it is okay. And let's be clear, all of this stuff, it's good for men and for women. It's not like these things should be just isolated for women or even just for people with kids because we know that elder care responsibility is becoming an increasing need for our new generation of leaders. With all of that, Laura, though, none of that matters when we're still at a point where women are being paid less than men for doing the same job, which is another one of our advocacy areas. On average, women are making twenty dollars to $30,000 less than men in the district superintendency. And at the state level, we put out this research in our last update from ILO Group, superintendents at the state level, there's a 40% pay gap difference between the elected lowest paid elected and the highest paid non-elected. 40% pay gap difference. And overall, women are making 12% less than their, their male counterparts. So we can't even get to a point where we can change what the view and the image and all these things look like when right off the bat, women are coming in with this incredibly um, large discrepancy that's then only exacerbated by all the invisible work that we know that women have to take on as well. That's why our last area is all about transparency. We need to have real public goals and public transparency state by state about the problem, mirroring what we've done in the top 500 state by state, putting out salary data for roles so that there is transparency in the salary. We think all of that can go a really long way in, in helping to make big change. Okay, so I listened to your research and I listened to your five advocacy areas. Obviously, I'm a believer. I'll follow you wherever you go. Um, and and and, and I get all of that. But let me, so I, what I would love for you to tell is like, how did you get here as far mm -hmm. as just ILO? We'll talk about you in a little bit. But I, you know, when I was at the WLE conference, you you talked a little bit about the first meeting and then how you've transformed. Can you tell us about what that, that first meeting and how you've grown so quickly, one in three students now um, in just a few years? Tell us a little bit about that. So back in 2018, uh, we were not having great success. So I was the chief operating officer at Chiefs for Change, and I had helped um, the organization to grow and to scale. I helped to create the Future Chiefs program. And we were on our, we just started our third cohort of the program, and we were starting to see some real success. But as we were looking at the data, we were in real success with men, not with women. And I was really worried. And it was one of those things where I'd started to notice and clock how many women would tell me that they just couldn't go for a job. And then they would insert an excuse that was totally valid sounding, but always involved a sort of overcorrection based on, well, the search firm said that they're not going to have a woman for this role, or the search firm told me that they're really focused on this aspect of you know capital improvements and a bond. And I don't have that kind of experience. And Laura, the reality was I had men going for jobs that they had absolutely no um, background and experience in order to go for, but they would just go for it because they were like, yeah, why not? I'll throw in for it. 
And I started to notice this very big difference in how men and women were approaching risk and analyzing risk. And so I decided to step back with two of my absolute uh, favorite, favorite women leaders at the time, uh, Hannah Skindera and Dr. Lillian Lowry, uh, who passed away last year. And Hannah and Lillian um, and I decided that we would host one meeting. We'd bring the women together in the network. We'd show them their data. We'd just show them and say, here's what's happening with the men. Here's what's happening with you. And when we crunched the data, what we saw was that at the time, only 23% of the women had even applied for a superintendent role in a district or state. 86% of the men had. When the women saw the data and when they came together in that first meeting to hear stories from one another, to really dive into some of the readings and the content, um, we'd promised we would just do it once and then we wouldn't do it again and uh, unless they wanted it. And 100% of them said, yes, we need this space. Yes, we want to have this. And that was sort of the beginning of what now has become a five-year journey to create Women Leading Ed. From that very first meeting, within two years, we had completely transformed the network. By the time that I had I left to spin off and, and create ILO Group, the women were surpassing the men in the percent of placement into superintendencies, and we were equal with 83% of the women having stepped into a search and 86% of the men. So we knew it was successful, but it's a drop in the bucket. And we wanted to be able to do something that was broader and bigger. So one of the first things we did was I teamed up with a number of incredible superintendents and we created the Forum for Educational Leadership. It is a training program for aspiring superintendents at the district and state level. We just launched cohort three last week. 150 leaders now came through this programming this first year. 15 people from cohorts one and two are now superintendents or have moved into advanced leadership roles. And then Women Leading Ed was the second thing that we launched um, this past year so that we could have a much broader and bigger impact on women within the sector. We now have over 100 women in Women Leading Ed. And as of this morning, we have over 400 signatures to the advocacy agenda coming from men and women leaders all over the country really excited about the progress and so grateful to Hannah and Lillian for the role that they played in really helping to spark and shape what's now become a big national network. Okay, so you're talking about this pathway and kind of training for people who want to become leaders. Um, and so I want you to reflect on something that Jean-Claude Brizard told us a few weeks ago. He said that if you are sitting in the principal job right now in a school, you are in training for being a superintendent. You know, I was asking him, how big is that leap? How different is that job? He's like, it's really not that far. Would you agree with that statement? I think that today's principles are in the training grounds. I also think this is a perfect example of where the skewed pipeline that exists for women starts to get created. Women are so often told that they should go from being teachers into things like being an elementary school principal, whereas men are so much more coached into the high school principal role. The high school principal role has so many of the job characteristics and qualities that then go on to take the most senior roles within central office. And it makes sense because that high school principal is out there doing so much more community exposure. They've got graduation, they've got football games, they've got big speeches, big moments. And oftentimes they've got so much uh, exposure to board members when they're in that role. And so right off the bat, that high school principal role has a different level of training that it is provided and so often is not the role that women are slated into. 
from that role, depending on the size of the district, you're typically going straight into a more senior role within central office, and then from there straight into the superintendency. But for women who are going elementary school principal, they're so much more often coached to become the chief academic officer or the head of teaching and learning. And from there, then they may end up going into the deputy role. The deputy role we find in our research is the role that is most likely to become a superintendent. It is, as we look at the research about what was the position that the person held before, deputy is the single most important title that leads into the superintendency. And Laura, it's, it's also the place where, as we dug into the research, unfortunately, the pathway into the superintendency looks really different for men and women when you're coming as an internal versus an external candidate. So if you're that principal and you're moving then into central, if you are a woman, what we found in our research is that you are more likely to become a superintendent if you are the internal candidate and more than almost half the time, if you serve as interim first, you get the job. Whereas for men, men have a much clearer pathway into those top 500 largest districts as an external candidate. What it says is another way that bias is playing this role. Men get to show up and um, be, be viewed as ready based on their potential, whereas women are more likely to get that job after they've knocked out of the park and show that they can do the job first. Very different kinds of pathways. Okay, so let me use a really specific example. So I know a woman, she's a principal of an elementary school, to your point, um, in, Colorado, in Denver, in Denver Public Schools. She's incredibly talented. She's super smart. She has actually risen her way up in that school. She was a teacher, a gifted, talented coordinator. Now she's the principal. She's probably the longest running principal there. I know she would be fantastic. And I know she has interest in being at least a district leader of some sort. Would you tell her, go be a high school principal? What, like, what should she be doing? There, are, there really aren't a lot of pathways, I don't think, for people who are principals. I think they want, you know, districts often want good principals to stay principals. And so I'm curious what you think about, what, what, what should I be telling her? I mean, what the research would say is that her, her best option is to move into a central pathway and something that has um, more on the operational and financial oversight aspects. You know, being able to move from that principal role into a chief of schools pathway uh, is a great one. Um, being able to move from that principal role into a role within Central that has oversight over large-scale projects, you know, big new strategic planning process that has big community engagement aspects to it, being a part of um, uh, the process and, and the work to get a bond passed. Those kinds of exposure uh, and projects are really, really important. Um, but, you know, if you take a look at, at a pathway of someone like, you know, Denise Watts, Denise Watts was coming from being the chief of schools. She'd been an extraordinary principal and was an extraordinary principal supervisor. And here she is, the incoming superintendent of, of Savannah Chatham in, in Georgia. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, and I think you're also kind of hitting on something else that resonates with me is this idea of exposure, right? Like I've always kind of said, I'm a backstage person, right? I love to see other people highlight. And I think that that's something that women are taught to do, right? We're, we're taught to like give other people the spotlight. But what I'm hearing from you is either whether it's the high school principal or what you're doing with the bonds is that you have to have some sort of visibility for people to, to know all the work that you're doing and that, that women have to kind of step into that limelight, which I think is really good advice as well. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned early on, and I, and this is probably my last question about Ilo, maybe one more, um, and then I want to talk about you. But you, you talked about these superintendents and what they're facing in the boardroom, right? The, the controversy, the anger, the frustration. 
And I'm curious, you know, when I listen to you talk about like the data and we know how many women are teachers and, and, and I know how great people like Susana Cordova are, um, it doesn't seem that controversial, but in your experience, ha- has it been kind of controversial pushing forward this, this idea of more women in superintendency positions and, and helping women into leadership? I wouldn't refer necessarily as it feeling like it's been controversial as much as I think we've got to get much more intentional about progress. I mean, Laura, what's happening in our sector, it's not like this is unique, right? As you look across every sector, you see the same alarming trends. You know, recently, the Fortune 500 companies um, had this moment where the Wall Street Journal was celebrating because they'd gotten to the 10% mark of the percent of Fortune 500 that were led by women, 10%. And we know when we start to look at the data, you see that at every rung within Fortune 500 companies, we lose more and more women, particularly as you get to the highest wage earning roles. And so I think as we step back and, and we look, at what's happening, it's not just an educational issue. However, it's particularly glaring in a sector that prides itself on being about opportunity. And so from my perspective, I think there is just so much more of a need at this point for real collective action about really stepping back and questioning as a society, what do we need to do to change the odds so that more women have a fair shot at both getting into that top role and then being able to thrive in it. But it's certainly not just an education problem. And I, and I wouldn't say that it's controversial for education. I would say this is a problem for our entire society that really needs to get addressed. It makes you wonder, right, if we had a female president, would we start to see a very different kind of tenor in these kinds of conversations? Would we start to see something that felt really different when you start to see more representation of women in these top CEO seats. You know, everything you talk about um, really, I think, resonates with a lot of not just women, I think people generally. I think there's a lot of people like myself asking, like, what can we do more? How can I be better? All of those things. But when I look at your um, resume, and I want to kind of transition to talking about you, because I think a lot of people want to do work similar to yours um, or help in the same ways, you know, I feel like you could kind of define your path as like doing what was needed, right? Like you looked around and you were like, this is what the world needs, right? You started out as a, as a special education teacher in the Bronx. Isn't that true? Yeah. And then like CEO of COO of chief, which you, you mentioned earlier, chiefs for change, um, which like is an organization that means so much to us. I think most people would have thought like, that's like the pinnacle of your career. And then to now do this, is that kind of been your guiding light is like, you look around and whatever anyone needs, that's what you're going to do. I think that that is, um, there's some real accuracy. My my path has not always felt like it was super linear. I certainly have made decisions uh, along the way that have been about trying to pursue the next stage of being able to impact what the problem was I was trying to solve. So when I was a teacher, you know, I went into becoming a special education teacher because I am somebody who identifies as having non-visible disabilities. I am dyslexic and school was a really, really tough place for me. And in fact, I think most people who knew me during my schooling years would be shocked at the way that my trajectory ended up going. So I was totally that square peg in the kind of the round hole of our, our school systems. What changed for me was when I went to college, I got connected to the Office of Disability Support Services and I had a incredible, um, uh, mentor there, the, a, the director of Disability Support Services, Christy Willis, who really took me under her wing and helped me to get the accommodations that I needed 
that fundamentally transformed my schooling experience. When I uh, went into teaching, I knew that the thing that I really wanted to better support was to make sure that more kids felt seen and heard and, and understood in the classroom. Um, but what I wasn't expecting was to see just how challenging uh, the systems that we have created are for teachers, how often the kinds of sanctioned solutions that you are provided are so far from what you believe your kids needed. I ended up in um, a situation when I was teaching where I was physically assaulted by one of my third grade students who was not getting his legally mandated services, as were so many students in my school. And my principal had asked me at the time to file a police report because what I was told was that their hands were tied, like that was the only path and option. And instead, I went home that evening and I wrote a very passionate email to Joel Klein, who at the time was the chancellor of the New York City Public Schools. Wow. And I shared with him how I thought that this was just such a wrong option and that there needed to be more uh, ability to help to support a student that clearly was just not getting the supports that they needed. You know what happened, Laura? He responded in 10 minutes. He thanked me for my service. He put all these people to work. And by the very next day, my student was getting his services, but so was so were all of my students and everything flipped and changed. And for me, I knew at that moment that the thing that I really wanted to better understand was number one, how was this system constructed? Like how on earth was I, this random teacher in the Bronx, able to email the Chancellor of New York City Public Schools and all of a sudden have everything change but why was it even like that to begin with? Why wasn't my student just getting the services that he needed? And then second to it was, I wanted to better understand who are these leaders? How do you become the next Joel Klein? How do you care so much about one of your teachers, one of your hundreds of thousands of teachers that you would take that kind of time and to be that focused on, on kids? And so I ended up, um, thanks to a incredible, incredible a sponsor in my my life, Julie Makuda, uh, who was doing some work at the time um, to help support and coach people who might become Rhodes and Marshall Scholars. Um, she reached out to me and she said, you could be a Rhodes or a Marshall Scholar. And I was like, nope, I definitely can't. Uh, I am the person that barely made it through through school. Um, but she, she uh, really disagreed with that. Um, and she helped to coach me that summer and I owe her everything. It was because of her coaching and her belief in me that I ended up a finalist for both. I won the Marshall Scholarship and I got to go to Cambridge and do a PhD that focused on better understanding how systems were designed, better understanding how we in the United States had taken an approach with a real medical model of disability that was very different than the UK's design. I got to study with some of the most brilliant individuals around the world um, and had the next person in my life who really shaped things for me. Darlene Opfer, who's now um, a, an incredible executive over at RAND. She was my PhD supervisor and really helped me to better understand large-scale policy. It was her um, real expertise and shaped the work that I was doing. There, all yeah. these individuals have given so much to you and they must be so yeah. proud of the way that you are now continuing to give it on to other people, right? Like whether it was, you know, answering the email or helping you get your, getting your scholarship or, or being your PhD um, mentor. And now like that's your whole entire career, right? Yeah. Everything you do is about supporting and mentoring other people. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that must just feel, feel really good for everyone involved. 
It is. And it, I was going to say, it's each of those individuals in the way that they poured into me, which is exactly what I do for other leaders, because you start to realize how much of life and, and certainly the way that I approach life is about sort of the ripples in the pond, the people that you impact, the people that you help to touch that then go on to touch other impact and, and see through greater work. And it certainly has been the centering of my career and, and the work that I try to do um, is to really have that that same kind of level of impact on, on those that I work with. It's interesting you say this. When we were at the WLE conference, every person who spoke, everyone had had a story about you. They all were like, well, this was the time I called Julia, or this is the moment that like Julia stepped in for me. But I actually want to talk about one of the stories where you actually decided to pass them on to someone else. Um, a superintendent had had a publication that um, her new her new district was not in love with, <laughs> uh, to say the least. And she had, to, she had to put something out to go with it. Basically, she had to say something, right? Whether it was an apology or something like else. Yeah. And the two of you, the way she described it was, the two of you wrote this thing that she was so proud of and she loved it and it was the perfect thing. And you knew, you were like, yeah, but you actually can't, you can't use this. Like, this was great. It was super therapeutic for both of us, but we can't do this. We need to call someone else. And I can't remember who it was, but you called someone else who helped her write what she ended up putting out. How do you know when your advice and your support is the right support and when you need another hand? I always have other hands. Um, I would not be where I am without the incredible team that I have at ILO Group and the incredible partners that I work with and that I trust in the work. Um, many of the women uh, refer to me as the good housekeeping seal of approval, and I don't, I don't take that, um, I don't take that one lightly. I think it's really, really important that you know yourself, you know your strengths, and then you know who you can trust and bring in. And I work with many, many different people when the leaders that I'm working with are in incredible moments of crisis, and being able to know and to navigate the strengths of each of the different partners that I have, who's better when it comes to things that involve crisis communication, who's better when it comes to crisis contract negotiations. We have different lawyers that we recommend on the way in and on the way out. And that's really intentional because these things require different levels of expertise. I am, I know what I'm great at and I know what I can be there for people, but I would never try to help a leader in areas that are outside of what my strengths are. But you better believe that if I'm bringing in a partner, I'm gonna make sure that that partner gives to that leader the very best of what they're doing so that we are creating strong handoffs and everything that we're working towards. That makes sense. Um, you know, one of the things that I noticed on your journey is the word advisory is in there quite a bit, right? You're the special advisor, the advisor for this. How often does it happen where you are advising a leader, a district you know, system, whatever, to do something and and they don't they 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 don't have an interest in taking your path. And what do you do when that happens? When you when you're advising in one way and they're like, "This is my journey." Well, how how do you handle that? How and how often is that happening for you? I think it's so important that when you are trusted as the role of a confidant, that you accept that you are just there providing your advice without that advice having anything to it. So meaning when I'm when someone comes to me and they're asking me and they're working with me on things, I'm going to give them my absolute, you know, this is what I believe, here's why I believe, I will do the work on my end to seek input from others. But in the same way, I always tell to leaders I'm working with, you've got to have your own board of advisors. I'm one voice. One of the things that we train on at the Forum for Educational Leadership 
is we put up a slide that looks like a big conference table and you are sitting at the head of that conference table and we ask people to really think through who is on their board of advisors who are they getting advice from and i always tell people that i'm working with to really question who's at the table and whether or not they are being paid in some way that's going to compromise the kind of advice that they got you know just recently i had a leader that i work with who is starting to contemplate what he's going to do next and Laura, like, I know that um, one of the people that was giving him some advice is, is somebody that is um, has a lot of um, interest in this person um, going to one particular role in this moment. And so the tough conversation that we had to have was, it doesn't mean that that person isn't in your corner, but it means in this particular case, that given the dynamics of their power relationships, that they probably shouldn't have a seat at the board of advisors for this discussion and this option. Another thing that I train on with leaders is decision-making journals. I think they're really, really important. Being able to analyze not only in the moment of a really tough decision, what went into that decision, your emotional state during, what different viewpoints came and having that ability to have that cognitive flexibility, hearing different sides is so important and is a lot of the work that I, I coach and I, I train leaders on. Um, it's interesting. You were talking about the, the the board of advisors. I really love that that image. I'm going to use it for myself. I'm, I'm like already drawing it out over here. Um, but uh, one of the things that also came up at the conference was, you know, the importance of an executive coach who has your interests in mind, not the districts, not the companies, not we know whatever, like you need to go find the person who who cares most about you because those interests are not always going to align. I think that's another good example of that board of advisors, whether even it's a paid coach, making sure that they're, you know, they're coming from you and that they understand what you need. That's that's really good advice. Um, I'd be, we, we were running low on time, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about um, Chiefs for Change because this organization means, to so, means so much to so many people. And you, you led a, a large part of like a period of growth, right? Talk about like, what you did, what, you know, what really resonates from that period of your career? Well, even though you have so many amazing things that you've done. Uh, it was incredible being able to come in. I think I was the third employee hired. It was a complete um, startup and, and a turnaround of, of an organization. And we took that organization and we turned it into a, a national advocacy organization. And I was so excited by the ability to really come together and, and help the original board um, in their real vision for what they wanted that growth to look like, what they wanted the membership to look like. I was so excited about the creation of Future Chiefs and then the Women's Affinity Group that Hannah and Lillian and I um, created for them and, and then um, designing the strategy for their future leadership pipeline, Rising Stars. All of that was such an exciting part of the strategy and the growth, but you also get to a point where you realize that you want to do more. It is one small network in the large ecosystem of our education system. And so much of the great work that was happening there meant that there were so many leaders that we were not able to work with. And that was the part that I was the most excited about really scaling up when we spun out. How do we create a much broader tent for all of the leaders in our country who aspire to become superintendents? How do we allow for women particularly to learn what I refer to now as the cheat code? How do you go faster and tighter and stronger in your career path to get to the top? 
I'm so proud of being able to get that work off the ground. And I am so excited that, you know, I left Chiefs for Change two and a half years ago. And in the last two and a half years to be able to see that they've been able to really keep things going and, and be able to um, make sure that the organization took the $110 million that we helped to raise and to be able to have that breathe life into a long-term trajectory is such an incredible, incredible privilege. Um, but as you can see, I'm kind of an entrepreneur at heart and being able to create ILO Group, to be able to power the form for educational leadership and women leading ed, um, I'm certainly uh, in my sweet spot in, in terms of building and designing and operationalizing um, big bets and big impact. Okay, tell me one thing at Chiefs for Change that you're really proud of, like either leading or initiating, and one thing that you did that like you maybe wouldn't do again. Oh, definitely future chiefs. I mean, I think like being able to work with great partners to be able to get that off the ground and, and to be able to execute the way that we did. By the time that I left, I saw through the first five cohorts, so 53 leaders in that programming and that scale and impact, um, half of them were superintendents and state commissioners. Um, that has been and will always be um, the stuff that I, I was most proud of, of being able to build out. Um, and then in terms of what we would have changed. Look, I think advocacy is really hard and, you know, Chiefs for Change needs to come out with what it really is standing for in this next chapter. It was a lot easier in the beginning, right? In the beginning, you had the most incredible leadership from John White and Hannah Skandera. The two of them were so clear about the coherency of their advocacy vision. The two of them were without a doubt, some of the most extraordinary leaders that I've ever seen up close. But that clarity about purpose and how to work in a bipartisan way to set a real advocacy agenda and real goals, it's really, really challenging, Laura. And I think as I think about um, when I left Chiefs for Change, I think you know that chapter had, had finished and I, I think they, they need to come out and, and be really clear. What does that membership stand for? What are the goals that they're really driving towards and, and what's the impact in the road ahead? because uh, the nation sure needs bipartisan advocacy leadership. Okay, so the one thread that we talked about when we talk about your career, and I'm, I'm sure everyone's like on your LinkedIn page right now looking at all the things I'm trying to like allude to, <laughs> but um, the thread we, we, we pulled out is like what needs to be done. Like That's what drives you is what needs to be not done next. And we know what you're doing now, but when you look at the future, like what do you think, what do you think is going to be next when you think of like what needs to be done next? We got to execute on this agenda for women. That's what's yeah. next. It's one thing to talk about these problems. It's one thing to be able to bring together people around it. But in order for us to have some real impact, we now need to start to get some real wins around what we're actually advocating for. And so for me and, and for what's coming next, it's going to be about seeing through that advocacy agenda and then making sure that we really put our weight and our energy behind leaders and their biggest bets so that our team at ILO Group is helping leaders to execute and implement on the absolute biggest bets that they have and to create more proof points about what it looks like when great leaders take these big jobs and keep their North Star on kids every single day. I can't tell you how much it means to me to have you say the word execute. I feel like I spent a lot of time with nonprofits around literacy, around ed tech, around, and not just nonprofits, all kinds of organizations. 
And there's a lot of meeting. There's a lot of like bringing people together to your point. And it's so nice to have, so refreshing to have someone say, and now we've got to get it done. It, it, it just, it's like, it, it lights a fire in me. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, and you know, one more question, then we'll go to our rapid fire. Uh, at the very beginning of this, we talked about the challenges facing leaders and the fact that leaders aren't staying in the role as long because of the challenges. Um, and we talked about, you know, threats in board meetings, uh, unsafe situations, the budgets aren't looking great. Um, kids learning loss is 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 in, is huge, yeah. right? And and we're barely scratching the surface of the things school leaders and district leaders are dealing with. When you think about all of that, what gives you hope? I am so hopeful when I look around at this new generation of leaders, getting to be in space with them and spending time with them. They're incredible. They're inspiring. They have visions for how to transform these systems. They're so much more innovative and creative than I think we all even know on a day-to-day. -day. And so I'm really hopeful about the changing face of educational leadership and just hope that we can put our, our weight behind making sure that there's much more equity in who actually gets into those top roles. That's awesome. That's really great. And I'm glad that you feel that way. I need to hear that right about now. As I list that out, I was like, God, it is a little terrifying. All right. Five <laughs> questions that we ask everyone who comes on our um, show. We call them rapid fire, but if you don't rapid fire, no worries. Um, the first is our podcast is called More Than a Test. The reason we call it More Than a Test, Amira, is because we believe we've built the third generation of ed tech um, assessments where kids can be assessed every single minute, every single day, as opposed to in these large benchmark assessments. But we've learned is everyone else reads it as something different. So when you heard more than a test, what did that mean for you? Well, I sit on the National Assessment Governing Board. I was appointed by the Secretary of Education almost three years ago. So my first thought when I read that was, of course, I thought of NAEP, which is uh, the gold standard when it comes to tests in our country. And after sitting for this long on the board, it truly is. It's one of the most thoughtful assessments that there is. And, and the, the individuals that are behind it are so brilliant. And there's so much that is going into what the future of that assessment looks like. We spend so much time at the board looking at what the future and next generation assessment looks like, how to get to stronger design. Um, so I think for me, that that's certainly where, where my brain went to. That's awesome. Um, the next question is, is like a literary moment. I really love that you shared that um, you've been identified as having dyslexia and, and that moment that someone, you know, kind of brought you under their wing and changed your life. But we're looking for a moment here where like it might, it might have been a book or a time that you were reading or something that um, really sticks with you around literature reading. Uh, my team would tell you that if they hear me talk about the book, Ready Player One, one more time, <laughs> that they're going to lose their mind. But I'll tell you, I found Ready Player One to be one of the most unsettling books that I've ever read because it felt so close to describing our actual reality. And if people listening have not read it, highly recommend, do not watch the movie, definitely read the book. Um, but I, I do worry that so much, particularly with the level of environmental damage and the way in which we lost sight in, in, in the book describes a, a culture where we lost sight of civics and democracy. And the only people being elected were celebrities because everyone was so plugged in and focused in this virtual world. It just doesn't seem far. When the NAEP results came out a couple weeks ago with the civics results, and you saw that the majority of our eighth grade students don't even know how we elect a president, it starts to make you realize that that world that Ready Player One is describing, it feels like it's almost upon us. Wow. I haven't read it, but I will, um, and I and I and I hear you for sure. And that, I, I saw the civics results and, and was shocked. Um, all right, 
so that was uh, one piece of a technology that you really love. So I struggled on this one because there's kind of two. Um, the one that changed me professionally was Slack. I got introduced to Slack uh, early on when I had come to Chiefs for Change. You know, I was coming from working in government. I had been John King's commi uh, assistant commissioner in New York. We certainly did not have things like Slack to get by. And I was used to coming home and having hundreds of emails after busy days out in the field. And once I started to use Slack, I loved how my email box was gone, that ability to work in real time and, and to huddle and collaborate. All of that was great. Um, but second all, I was a late adopter to Apple Watches and it has so transformed uh, my life. I feel like Apple Watch um, would be also second on my list there. I love it. Both of those are really good answers. Um, I feel like Slack <laughs> is somewhat, you know, like a double-edged sword. You're always everywhere, but it's, it's great that you love it so much. And my team will, will be excited to hear that. Um, okay. And then uh, a lot of women I'm sure are listening and thinking they want to have the impact that you've had. They want to, to do some of the roles that you've done. Um, what would be the advice you'd give them? Don't compromise on your values. Know your worth and know when it is time to walk away and move on to the next thing. And just make sure that in everything that you are choosing to do, that you're doing it with the right people and for the right leader. If you can do those things and you can stick true to what your values look like, you're gonna make decisions that you're gonna feel great about. And that, that to me is how I've tried to live my life. That's awesome. That's great. I'm going to keep going back to that, that board table. Um, okay. And then I think I know the answer to this, but one book everyone should read. Oh, this one though, slightly different, uh, Savage Inequalities. So Jonathan Kozel wrote this book. It woke me up at a time in my life and, and my own um, experiences. And it was a big piece of what got me into education. It came out more than 30 years ago. And unfortunately and tragically, it, it feels so often like we've made no progress. Um, so I would I would put that one in the the more of the reality bucket and and save Ready Player One for when you want to go into a dystopian world of of horror about what could be ahead if we don't get right real relationships with our kids and and really focus on our our civics in this country. You know, you are the second person in like two weeks to say that that book is why they got into education. I yeah. think we might need to to. I don't, find some way to like thank the education gods for getting so many, many people there through this book. But um, that's amazing. Thank you so much for being here. This has been a, a really great conversation. So many things that we can actually do in our own lives and in our organizations, but also just such a great spotlight on the reality of leadership in, in school districts and, and state organizations um, in this country. So thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me on, Laura. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.